This is Recorded Future, Inside Security Intelligence. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 199 of the Recorded Future podcast. I'm Dave Bittner from the CyberWire. Our guest this week is Sir David Omond. He is former director of GCHQ, one of the UK's primary intelligence agencies, and is currently visiting professor in war studies at King's College, London. We'll be discussing his career in intelligence and public service, the changes he's seen along the way, and we'll discuss his most recent book, How Spies Think, 10 Lessons from Intelligence. Stay with us. In 1969, I left Cambridge University with a first-class degree in economics, had a a short period in working in Her Majesty's Treasury, decided that kind of economic advisor work was not for me, looked around for something interesting to do, and was put in touch with GCHQ, the government communications headquarters, the British equivalent of the US National Security Agency. And nobody would talk about this very secret organisation, which intrigued me. So I sat their entrance exam, which was the hardest exam I've ever sat in my life. To my slight surprise, I ended up there. But uh, I never never regretted it. It was uh, a wonderful place to work. But I then transferred to the Ministry of Defence in London, worked in defence really for quite a long time, was invited uh, in the mid-90s to go back to GCHQ as its director. It was the end of the Cold War, the digital revolution was coming and there was a need for change. So I went back to start that programme, then spent three years as the senior civil servant, the permanent secretary in the Home Office, and then ended up in the Cabinet Office as, I suppose, the British equivalent of the DNI, the UK Security and Intelligence Coordinator. So that was essentially my career in the worlds of UK intelligence and defence and security. What was it about a career in public service that was attractive to you? This was the 1960s, the end of the 1960s. Uh, Very different atmosphere to today's world. Uh, A lot of young graduates felt they wanted public service, and I did, uh, to give something back, if you like. Uh, We weren't particularly interested in making large sums of money. That wasn't the zeitgeist. Job security was pretty good in those days. So if you had a good degree and you were a graduate, you knew you would always be able to get a job. You didn't have the kind of insecurity, which is one of the problems today. Uh, But public service, I never looked back. It was a wonderful career. Uh, Took me into some very, very interesting pieces of work. When you went back to GCHQ in the 90s, can you give us some insights on to what was the state of things there? I mean, the, the, the Internet was really starting, starting to, uh, to get ahead of steam behind it at that point. Only just, only just. I mean, email was around, but that was mostly confined to commercial organizations. The uh, iPhone had not been invented. 
the app had not been invented, social media had not been invented. It was just the beginnings, but you could sense that there was a digital revolution just approaching really quite fast. Uh, and if organisations like uh, uh, GCHQ didn't adapt, and the National Security Agency didn't adapt very quickly, they would simply become obsolete because the Cold War had essentially been fought in an analogue world and one where intelligence, you know, was gathered, was carefully and quite slowly analysed, added to the heap of knowledge which would uh, support our military commanders if war ever came. The the post-Cold War world was very different. You had terrorists... uh, serious organised criminality, you had proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons, uh, risks, all of those things which required a, uh, a different approach to the gathering and application of intelligence. Well, when you think back to those days when you were, when you were planning for the future and you compare that to how things have actually developed, um, how, how much of your predictions back then were on the mark? The central predictions were exactly on the mark. The digital revolution did arrive. Uh, It it then developed further and faster than I think we'd thought. I don't think any of us in the 1990s really thought that social media would become the mobilising force, uh, which it has done, uh, connecting people. uh, Facebook alone has, what, two and a half billion users around the world. I don't think we had quite foreseen that, but that uh, all forms of of, uh, information uh, would be digitised, whether it was video, whether it was sound, um, uh, forensic information, everything would be uh, rendered into digital form. And that would mean it could be stored, it could be accessed even the beginnings of what have become smart cities, that you would have devices that would be connected to the internet. That was just beginning to be thought about. And the uh, application of intelligence to reduce the ignorance of the people who have to make the final decisions, uh, by providing them with information about uh, the, the threats we face, Uh, those who mean us harm, the autocrats, the terrorists, the criminals, the cyber attackers, Um, the flexibility needed to support that kind of decision-making has indeed, that's exactly how the world has turned out. Well, I think that's a great opportunity for us to, to discuss your book, which is titled How Spies Think, Ten Lessons in Intelligence, um, what prompted you to, to write the book? What, what prompted you to, to put together this list of lessons? I have to confess, it was uh, almost a state of anger. Uh, I wrote the book as a call to arms in favour of rationality, in favour of having decision-making being based on greater use of rational analysis and less on appeal to our emotions. And the roots of the book were in my feelings at seeing how first the Brexit debate in the United Kingdom uh, and then the 2016 US presidential election campaign 
were being reflected in social media. And what we all saw was knowledge was regarded as dependent on social forces rather than on, on reason. We had this rising tide of half-truths that sought to persuade people online of what they ought to want, not to mention some downright falsehoods and some deceptions, and we now know that some of those were coming from Russia, aimed at widening divisions in society and setting us at each other's throat. So that set me thinking about what is the, the theme of the book. What would you need to know to take a rational, evidence-based decision? You describe in the book uh, what you call C's, S-E-E-S, which is a model of analytical thinking. C's is, a, is an acronym. Can you take us through what it stands for? Yeah, let me just make one preliminary remark, because hmm. for all of us, uh, and those in business as well as those in government, if you're going to take a major decision, you have to bring together two types of thinking inside your head. On the one hand, desires for what we want to achieve by our choice, or it might be our fears over what we want to avoid by taking a decision. And on the other hand, sees the rational analysis of the situation we're facing and the options open. Now, you need both. You need the passionate, values-driven, what ought to be and what I want, and the dispassionate, what is and what can be. But you've got to bring them together. And what I was seeing was that the uh, the passionate part of it was beginning to drive out the rational uh, analysis. And it's always been hard to bring those kinds of thinking together, but it is getting harder in the internet age. And you will recognise this. It's that emotional feeling of, on hearing something, or seeing it on social media, I would like that to be true. And if it's repeated often enough, it becomes, well, it might be true. And then that slides too easily into, well, for me, it's as good as true, and I'll act as if it's true. And that's mm. what we saw with the storming of the, the Capitol building. So my book sets out this method of thinking, uh, which I called C's. It stands for situational awareness, explanation, estimation, and strategic notice. You start with accessing data about what's happening on the ground or in cyberspace to answer those factual questions that start with what, when, and where. Uh, you need to take the trouble to establish what is actually going on before we all start arguing about what to do about it. And our choice of where to look for evidence, of course, can be biased, it can distort the picture. Uh, you can fall victim to rumour, fake news, deliberate deception. So you need the humility to take care over facts and recognise that our knowledge of the world is always fragmentary, it's incomplete, and yes, it is sometimes wrong. And that's the first lesson in the book, the first lesson of intelligence. But if you have solid facts, what do they actually mean? If you have data, it's capable of multiple explanations. So the first E in the word sees is explanation. And that answers the questions about why and how. So you test alternative explanations against the data. You look for the explanation with the least evidence against it 
not necessarily the one with most in its favour, because if you look hard enough, you can always find some evidence to support an argument, however crazy. That's how conspiracy theories thrive. But Mm. if you've got the data and you've got a good explanation, you can move on to the bit that's really valuable for uh, decision makers, for the uh, prime ministers and generals and senior police commanders. You can estimate how events may turn out. Uh, It's a word I prefer to predict. Intelligence Mm. analysts prefer to avoid the word predict because there are no crystal balls. But you can estimate within bands uh, how things might turn out. And you can start to model uh, on different assumptions what might happen after you've taken a a decision. We we see this all the time with the COVID-19 modelling. And this is what you get from the scientists, for example, if you applied certain COVID-19 measures, what is likely to happen? And they make assumptions about the, the degree of public compliance, for example, with a restriction. So take those three together, uh, situational awareness, the explanation, and the strategic notice, and you've got a very good rational way of providing that essential solid analysis that any decision maker needs to set alongside the kind of more emotional, uh, more uh, media uh, considerations that are in in their mind. My acronym C's, there are four letters, and the last one is another S, and that stands for strategic notice. Because whilst you're focused on the first three, experience, certainly my experience, is that something completely unexpected will come and hit you on the back of the head. (laughs) <laughs> so you need strategic notice of possible future challenges that might come and upset your decisions. And that's answering questions about how could we prepare best for what might come and hit us next? Or even, here's a risk, could we preempt it so it never comes to test us? I mean, quantum computing at scale may turn up one day and that'll destroy the security of the internet. So wouldn't it be a good idea to commission the research now on quantum-resistant algorithms so that international financial transactions can still be secure, even if the first people to get there are China, and so on. So another important lesson in intelligence is that if you do devote effort to acquiring strategic notice, looking over the horizon, and you use that information wisely to prepare you don't have to be so surprised by surprise itself. And one of the best examples of that is the vaccine production, where some years ago, because of other uh, diseases uh, like SARS, uh, the biotech industry worked with regulators to see how could you speed up the process of vaccine development and have all the right kind of scientific knowledge you would need and uh, uh, genome sequencing you would need. And, of course, unexpectedly, we suddenly got hit with COVID-19. But within a year, we have workable vaccines, which is a truly remarkable scientific achievement. But it didn't come out of nowhere. There was strategic notice some years ago, and the industry took account of it. How important is collaboration? It strikes me that 
an individual um it's very easy for an individual to find their their rational thinking short-circuited by their emotions but if you have a a, a group of people uh is it more likely that that someone can say hey you're you know <laughs> snap 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 to your senses here you know you're you're not thinking straight yes the second part of my book is really devoted to all the ways you can get it wrong the cognitive errors in particular. And you get these at the level of the individual, you get them at the level of the work group, and you get them, sadly, sometimes even at the level of an institution that has built-in biases or prejudices. But certainly at the level of the individual, because these uh, various biases are unconscious, you don't know you're being affected by them. Uh, and that unconsciously you've tended to favour the explanation that you most wanted deep down. Uh, and the best way to avoid that is to make the assessment or analysis a team sport. So if you've got others in the team, they can see, ah, what's going on here is that uh, you're downplaying the evidence against the hypothesis and you're taking far too much, paying too much attention to the bit that, you know, bears out what you always said. Uh, and that can be quite dangerous. Uh, that was one of the reasons why the uh, intelligence in the run-up to the Iraq war in 2003, some of those judgments were not very good. And one of the reasons was because subconsciously, we all, and I was around at the time, we all believed that Saddam did have these weapons and therefore we focused too much on validating the bits of information which tended to say, well, yes, he does, mm. and downplaying the uh, such information as there was that suggested, well, hang on, there's an absence of evidence here. Why aren't we seeing this or that uh, and we tended to ascribe that to Saddam's deception. Oh, well, he's deceiving us. And it's so easy to explain. This is what happens with conspiracy theories as well. It's so easy to explain away contrary evidence if you're in the grip of, you know, a very firm belief system, as we were then, that uh, Saddam did have these weapons. Of course, he had them in the past. And that's one of the reasons why we were convinced he would still have them. And I suppose, I mean, this speaks to the importance of, of having diversity of thought within your team, but, but also a culture where uh, people can raise their voice and say, ha have the courage or, or the support to say, I don't agree with what everyone else is thinking here. The cognitive problems that you get that tend to lead to distortions in judgment uh, can occur at the level of the individual. But they can also occur at the level of the group. Uh, this is often described as groupthink. Uh, and it sometimes comes about because you've got a very dominant leader and the members of the group don't dare put their hands up and disagree with the boss. Uh, or it may be that such, there's such a strong feeling in the group uh, and perhaps there's an outgroup, so they're blaming someone else for what's going on. And that group feeling is so strong that you don't get uh, a genuine argument, you don't get uh, the, the facts of the matter or the explanation really being uh, examined. 
there are different techniques you can use. One of them, which is quite, quite uh, common, is a kind of red teaming. So let's have another group. Uh, or if the boss just simply says, look, let's break for half an hour, think about this, and then perhaps somebody will come up to the boss and say, look, young so-and-so, he's the real expert, but I can tell he doesn't agree. Or you can appoint a member of the group and say, look, I want you to challenge this before we publish this decision. <laughs> let's, let's really take mm-hmm. it apart. So all these techniques, they're quite well known, uh, but what it boils down to, you, if you're in charge of any sort of analytic work, you've got to create a safe space. And the same is true for presidents and prime ministers. It's no use being a president or a prime minister if those around you don't dare tell you the truth. Now, creating a safe space probably means keeping the media well away. It probably means keeping most of the executive away because the leader will not want to lose face by having to admit that they've got it wrong or the facts have changed so they're going to have to change their mind. So you do need a small safe space where trusted counsellors can say to the boss, however grand they are, look, boss, we're all convinced you haven't quite got this right. Uh, And, of course, if, if you can always think of good historical events where we would have been better off if that kind of discussion had taken place. The final part in your book is uh, is optimistic. You you end on a on a note of optimism. Can you can you share that with us? Yes, uh, and uh, having published the book, a number of commentators have raised their eyebrows and said, since so much of the book is downbeat and it's pointing out the problems we've had with Russian interference with our elections. It's pointing about uh, out about the way that social media can lead to. Uh, conspiracy theories being spread. So why are you optimistic? Well, let me start with one observation, which is American democracy survived its challenge last month. Uh, The uh, President Biden is the lawful president of the United States, and he's in the White House, and he's in office, despite the challenges, uh, and the false challenges, I may say. So that's one example. The other thing I'd say is that it is becoming clearer that uh, the democracies have to take care to safeguard that precious thing, democracy. It won't look after, necessarily look after itself. So, for example, we have to start in schools teaching children how to stay safe online, teaching them how to discriminate between false ne- fake news and genuine news. Uh, We've got to work with the internet companies, and there's some signs they're coming round to this, so that they start to label material which is harmful, or better still, remove it altogether. Uh, So you can see signs that we've been through rather a bad period, but uh, given care, we can actually safeguard ourselves. Our thanks to Sir David Omond for joining us. His book is titled How Spies Think, Ten Lessons from Intelligence. 
Don't forget to sign up for the Recorded Futures Cyber Daily email, where every day you'll receive the top results for trending technical indicators that are crossing the web. Cyber news, targeted industries, threat actors, exploited vulnerabilities, malware, suspicious IP addresses, and much more. You can find that at recordedfuture.com slash intel. We hope you've enjoyed the show and that you'll subscribe and help spread the word among your colleagues and online. The Recorded Future podcast production team includes coordinating producer Caitlin Mattingly. The show is produced by The Cyberwire with executive editor Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Thank you.